All right, we're continuing today in this series called Red Letters. And as many of you know, um, often in the Bible when Jesus is speaking, it, it is printed. It's denoted by printing the words in red. And we're in a section of Luke where all of, if not most of, if not all of the teaching uh, in this section is straight out of the mouth of Jesus. And so if you have one of those red letter Bibles, this is a very uh, red-ridden section. Last week, we jumped into Luke 15, only to find Jesus being accused, accused by the religious leadership of not only welcoming, but also eating with tax collectors and sinners. That he would even sit down with them to share a meal, that he would embrace them and engage them in fellowship, that he would demonstrate this scandalous, overt acceptance of people who were considered to be on the margins. And so there's this question that Jesus is now addressing. How does he... How does God think and feel about people who are not just lowercase, but full-on, uppercase, all-caps, sinners? Well, last week Jesus told two stories about this, and both this week and next week, um, a two-part series here, we're going to tackle this third story, a story that's been called the story of the prodigal son, a story that Mark Twain, I think, by the way, said was the greatest story ever written. Not that Jesus need Mark, needs Mark Twain's endorsement, but he was a pretty good storyteller himself. And so today, we dive into Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 24. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven And against you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Know any younger brother types? Have a younger brother type as a sibling? Are you the younger brother type of the family? Have you acted younger brother? <laughs> I wasn't expecting an amen at that point, Candace. That's, 
not the point I was hoping for that, but that works. Thanks for your honesty. Um, or maybe more specifically, have you acted younger brother-ish during a particular season of your life? Jesus dives into his story today. We find out right from the beginning that this is a story about a father who has two sons, an older brother and a younger brother. This week, we're going to talk about the younger brother and the father. Next week, we're going to dive into the older brother and the father. And so as we get started today, let me say this. Some in this room are very much younger brother types. When we hear the younger brother, when we hear his story, we say, yeah, that's me. I relate to that. I struggle to follow the rules, live up to expectations, to walk the narrow path. And my story, at least for a season of my life, resembles this free-spirited, rebellious, walk-to-the-beat-of-my-own-drum existence. Others of us will relate more next week when we talk about the older brother. That will be our tendency But here's the deal, and here's what I want to challenge you with this morning. All of us are a mix of both. In other words, every single person in this room has perhaps, even more than you think, some younger brother in us. And so as we look today at this younger brother, we're going to try to see ourselves in him. Last week, Pastor Matt talked about the importance of inserting yourself into these stories. To truly understand them, to truly feel them, to truly let them impact you. You have to be in them. Today, I'm going to ask you to step in, and here's your character. All of you, even the ladies, are younger brothers today. And this morning, if you're taking notes, we're going to be looking at the four R's, the four R's of the younger brother, the four R's of the younger brother life. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now, first of all, for reasons we'll get back to next week, when a, a father's estate, when a family's estate was divided amongst the children, it went to the sons. Now, I know that seems very unfair to you ladies. We'll talk more again about that next week. But for today, we're just going to accept that that's how it was. Um, the older brother, the oldest brother, the oldest son would receive a double portion. So depending on how many kids there were, that would depend how much each got. In this case, there's two sons. And so if the older brother gets twice as much as the younger brother, how much does the older get? This is like one of those word problems from school, right? You're like, no, math in fifth grade. The older brother gets how much of the estate? Two-thirds, which leaves how much for the younger? One-third. Today, we're going to be talking about one-third of this family's estate. No small amount. And to really understand what a shameless request this was, we have to know a few things about Middle Eastern rule culture. First of all, back then, a person's estate, their land, had been passed down from generation to generation to generation to generation. This is something that had been in the family for a long, long time. You just just didn't go out and acquire land on your own. You inherited it. You gathered it. It happened over long, long periods of time. And so a, a person's land, a family's land, was an enormous part of their identity. People who live in, in more of an agricultural um, kind of climate than we do get this a bit more. Back in the Midwest where there's farmers everywhere, they understand this passage a little more deeply. But to help you understand it, let me share this. When I was a kid, my parents uh, love 
to listen to musicals. They, they loved like musical plays. And so we'd go on road trips. Some of you will relate to this experience. We'd go on road trips and our giant like wood paneled sided station wagon and my parents would bring cassette tapes. Kids look up what that is. And they would play these musical shows like over and over again for all, you know, for hours and hours in the car. And my dad and mom would just sing out. My dad especially just loved to sing and so he would bellow the, the words to these tunes. One of their favorites was this musical called Oklahoma. And a lot of good songs in the... I love all these songs and I could sing them all for you and I will spare you today. But um, one of the, the, the theme song of the musical Oklahoma is called Oklahoma. And at one part of the song, it goes like this. You know we belong to the land and the land we belong to is grand. And we say... Ayipioe. You know, we're saying, you're doing fine, Oklahoma, Oklahoma, okay. So, but did you hear what they said? So it's kind of a fun song and zippy and catchy and now you'll be singing it the rest of the day if you know it. But, uh, but did you hear what they said at the very beginning of what I sang? They said, we belong to the land. The land we belong to. Not the land that belongs to us, but we belong to it. You see, friends, they have the same perspective as the people in our story. The land was central. The land was paramount. The the land was immensely important. They belonged to it. Their identity was woven deeply into their land. That's why when Jesus tells us in verse 12 that the Father divided his property between them, the word he uses for property is actually the little Greek word bios. Bios, it's the word from which we get our word biology. It means life. He divided his life between them. Jesus says, this father hands over his entire life to his sons, everything he's worked for, everything he's invested his heart and soul into. Now, normally when a father passed out the inheritance to his children, he did it very slowly. They were smart. (laughs) The sons would get their designated share. They knew what was coming to them and they would get responsibility over their share very slowly. They would be trained by the father. They would be taught how to manage. They would be given more and more responsibility for their portion so that they could steward it, so they could use it for the good and advancement of the family. But if we look closely at this younger son's request, that is not what he wants. This is not what the younger brother is after. More responsibility, slow training and leadership. No, he's saying, Father, I'm I'm, I'm not ready to learn from you about how to take ownership and leadership. I don't want more responsibility for providing for the family. No, the word he uses in verse 11, it's not a usual word. It's not the word for inheritance. That was the usual word when talking about these things. Instead, the younger son says, I want my what? My portion of the estate. Different Greek word. It's a word that solely focuses on the material. And what he's saying is this, dad, I want my stuff. Not interested in leadership, not interested in responsibility. I want my stuff. And almost what all commentators say about this request is that it was equal to, it was tantamount to saying, dad, 
I wish you were dead. Because that's really when full and complete autonomous control of the land would be given, when the father died. And so this son says, Dad, I want your stuff as if you were dead. I don't want any accountability or responsibility or guidance or teaching or training. I just want to live my life the way I want to live it, and I don't want you meddling with how I do things anymore. You ever been in that place? Ever been in the place where you said or wanted to say or maybe by your actions made the statement, God, get out of my business. I'll spend my money the way I want to. I'll use my time the way I deem necessary. I'll use my gifts and talents and abilities the way I want to use them. I'll act and talk the way I want to. I'll watch TV when and how and what and the way I want to. I'll respond in this difficult relationship that I'm in the way I want to. God, I've got goals and dreams and desires and wants and I don't need you looking over my shoulder trying to dictate how I live my life. You ever lived that way? You ever asked? Say that to God? You ever, I mean, we don't say that to God as church people, right? We would just sort of do it. We just sort of ignore him. We just take control. You see what this son is saying to this father is this. Hear it. I want to live my life as if you were dead. As if you didn't have any control or influence over me. As if you weren't my father anymore. Got any younger brother in you? Got any places where you're trying to live your life as if God isn't your father anymore? You know, one of the most humbling things about being a father for me, um, and some of you have kids that are a little older, and I know, I understand they move in and out of seasons like this, but mine are still young enough that they're in a, a season where they really look to me for my opinion. My opinion still matters. It still counts. It still holds a whole lot of weight with my kids. My oldest is 12. I know that's soon going away. Um, but no matter what they do, when they create something or draw a picture even or perform something or compete in a game, they're always looking to me as if to say, Dad, is that all right? Did I do okay? Are you proud of me? Did I do good? Friends, are you looking to God that way in your life? Or is your main goal to take his guidance and lead and direction, set it aside so that you can be in in charge and in control of your own life? That's the younger brother. That's what the younger brother does. I want to do my own thing, to live my life as if you were dead, as if you were not my father anymore. And now we move from request, the request, our first R, to rebellion, which comes right after. Verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to feed to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one Gave him anything. Friends, this is the point of the story where things get bad. Not just kind of bad, but bad, bad. Real bad. In fact, Jesus tells this entire section of the story in a way that is designed to communicate to us one major thing, and that's this. The extravagance of this kid's rebellion. How, How off the charts, off the deep end, his rebellion is. 
He sells off his father's ancestral land. He liquidates it. He turns it into cash, probably in his impatience for a fraction of the price it was worth. You know, when you have a desperate seller, you can always undercut him. This kid was desperate. He was ready to go. And then we're told he squandered his wealth. That word squandered literally means to toss money into the air. This is biblical language for making it rain. Some of you don't know what that means, and that's a good thing. But that's certainly what this kid was up to. And by the way, what's the typical name for this story? We normally call it what? The story of the prodigal son. That word prodigal, is it simply an old English word that means somebody who's a spendthrift. Somebody who spends money in a wastefully extravagant way. That's what this younger brother's doing. The word in this section for wild living. You can use your imagination you know, what he's up to. This is a Vegas trip on steroids. But the word wild there literally means riotous. Riotous, riotous. When do people riot? They riot when they are completely and utterly against something. That's when they riot, when things have gone too far, when they will not stand for something any longer. And what Jesus is saying in the strongest possible language here is this. This guy's life is utterly, completely, violently opposed to the ways of his father. He is now riding against the ways of God. And then, what happens? In the middle of his riot, in the middle of his, of his you know, tossing money away, spendthrift living, what comes his way? A famine. A famine shows up on the scene. Actually, Jesus says a severe famine. And here's what's crazy about the way Jesus tells this story. I think this point is significant. Sometimes it's our choices that have very clearly created distance between us and the Father. They've very clearly created and, and, and orchestrated our own suffering. But other times, other times, that distance, that suffering seems to be something out of our control. It seems to be something that happens not from us, but to us. Most of the time, it's both. But here's the point. When we end up with the pigs, it's not always clear how we got there. It's not always just a clear line between I did this, I said this, I made this choice, and here I am. Sometimes things happen to us that are out of our control. Sometimes we make choices, sometimes things happen, most of the time it's both. But friends, the pigs, the pigs this this young man ends up with, to the Jewish people, they were like the lowest, dirtiest, most vile, disgusting creatures on the face of the earth, and now he has sunk so low that he even longs to eat their slop. For Israelites, for Jews, to even be around pigs was a severe breach of God's law. Something they would never do. They would never be around pigs. They would certainly never eat pork. But now, this young man even longs to eat the food of the pigs. Friends, ever been there? Ever find been in the place where you find yourself doing things or engaging things or wanting things or desiring things you never imagined wanting or desiring or doing or even considering. You ever been in that place? I remember when Amy and I were having our first child and uh, the woman who helped deliver our first child said, 
all right, you guys are first-time parents. And we said, yeah. And she said, okay, have you talked through how you're going to parent? We said, yes, we have, and we're going to be pretty good. And she said, well, here's the categories that you have. You're going to have, like, this is how we should act. And then you're going to have, well, this is how we'd act in case of an emergency. And then she said, and then you're going to have, there's no way in the world we'll ever act this way. And she used some choice language to describe that. And she said, um, when you arrive here, you'll know you're really parenting when you start doing this stuff, right? <laughs> because as a parent, you all you end up there somewhere. Well, we never thought we'd be here. We never thought we'd say that. We never thought we'd try that. But you do, friends. Sometimes that's how life is. You end up in a place where you say, how did we get here? How did we sink so low? Maybe you're at a place today where you're saying, how did my story, how did my life end up on this path? This was never a part of the plan. These were never a part of my dreams. Friends, maybe you're there today. If you are, it's imperative that you understand why Jesus tells this story exactly the way he does. He tells the story of the most scandalous sin and wretched rebellion the people of his day could have possibly ever imagined so that he can tell you, he can tell me about the most staggering grace we can imagine. Jesus wants us to know this. If there is a chance, if there is a way back into relationship with the Father for this younger brother, then there certainly is for you. And here's where it begins. The road back. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. In this section of the story, Jesus gives us a picture of where repentance begins. So we have the request, we have the rebellion, and now, finally, we start to turn the corner with repentance. First of all, he says this, the young man came to his senses. It might be one of my favorite phrases of this entire story. He came to his senses. I just love the image. Put yourself there. I mean, you can just see him standing there, staring longingly at the pig slop, and then all of a sudden, it comes to him. What am I doing And in this moment, he begins to to see reality in a sensible way for the first time in a long time. And there are two things that he sees, two things that he sees all of a sudden very clearly, two primary components of repentance, two primary pieces that will move your life back in the direction of the Father. Here's the first one. He remembers who his Father is. He remembers who his Father is. He says this, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? You see, hired servants in that day were just day laborers. They were the guys you picked up off the street to work for the day for cheap. Most of them were unskilled. And ultimately, the master, the hirer, would pay them whatever they wanted, whatever they deemed they were worthy of. And day laborers, their big hope was that they would just make enough in one day to support themselves for that very day. But what this son remembers is this. My father is even gracious to the hired servants. He even gives extra to the lowest of the low. He remembers, friends, all of a a sudden, how his father treats people. He remembers his father's grace and generosity. And in that place, in the safety and love and security of his father's character, 
It is now time for the very first time in a long time for him to make an honest assessment of who he is and where he's at. And that's step two. He realizes where he is. He remembers who his father is, which gives him the freedom to realize where he is. And here's what he says. And here I am, starving to death. That's his one phrase, synopsis, of the status of his life. And here I am, starving. One scholar I read this week said, Repentance begins with an accurate assessment of your condition. With waking up to the reality of where you really are. The son realizes this, My condition ain't good. But why? Why? And... Here's the key. Listen to what he says. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. You see, when the son comes to his senses, it's not just that he suddenly discovers that he's hungry. He's been hungry for a long time. Uh, He doesn't suddenly discover that he's in a lot of pain, that his life is not going the way he wants. What this boy suddenly realizes is that his relationship with his father has been damaged. He starts to realize that at the very center of my problem, at the very center of my pain, at the very center of the misdirection of my life, it's not just simple choices that I've made. It's not just bad decision making. It's that I've severed relationship with my father. That's why he says, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you, father. And who is the father in this story? God. He says, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against the ways you, you want things to, 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 to be and the ways you want me to act and the life you long for me to live. I've sinned against that, but I've also just sinned against you. It's a very personal, relational confession. You see, all of a sudden in this story, we learn that this is not a rules issue. This is not a behavior issue. This is a relationship with the Father issue. And so now we get perhaps the most simple and profound definition of repentance in the entire uh, scriptures. Verse 20. You want to know what repentance is? And it's the most basic, simple form. Here it is. He got up and went to his Father. He got up and went to his father. You see, repentance is not primarily about walking away from sin. It's not walking to another solution. It's not walking to something else that will make your life better or more pleasurable or more satisfying or more happy. Repentance at its very core is about re-engaging relationship with your heavenly father. So he got up and went to his father. And how long has it been? How long has it been since you just turned and went to your father? Not when things are great, not when things are rosy, not when all is well and you're feeling super self-righteous, but in the middle of your mire, in the middle of your muck, in the middle of your deepest, darkest sin, your most grand and enormous struggle, you just turned and said, God, I just need you. All I need is a relationship with you. That's what I need. I can't fix this on my own. I won't even try to. Repentance is turning and going to the Father. How long has it been since you've just gone to the Father? Well, even though this son is now moving in the right direction, he doesn't understand repentance fully. And here's where the story takes a little twist. See, now he's got a plan. He'll go back, he will take the shame, he will endure the ridicule of the town and the people, and slowly but surely, he will earn his way back. He will regain what he's lost. He will, through his own efforts, repay his father. 
And friends, this is maybe the greatest younger brother misunderstanding and lie of our time. It's the biggest lie about who our God is and what his good news offers. And here's the lie. God is merciful enough to let you back into his good graces if you try really, really hard to clean yourself up and prove your loyalty. See, God's gracious. He'll give you a second chance, but you're going to have to prove it. You're going to have to work and you're going to have to strive and you're going to have to earn. And friends, I know none of us say, we would. how many of us believe that? And all of us would go, no, I don't believe that. Pastor Carl told me for years that wasn't true and I listened to him for sure. Um, but here's how I know you that you really don't believe that. And here's where it comes out for Christians. Baptism. Baptism. Oh, how how am I? How are you saved? Through the grace of God. Do you have to earn your salvation? No. Oh, why are you here to be baptized today? Well, I've been walking with Jesus for a long time, and I finally got my life to the place where I think I'm good enough to be baptized. Or I think I've like I've like I've still got some sin, and hopefully God can take care of that in the tank. But I've cleaned up most of it now, right? You have no idea how many times I've heard that from people getting baptized. People who've walked with Jesus deeply and intimately for years and they're finally getting around to being baptized and they say, why'd you wait so long? Well, I was still really wrestling with sin and now I've kind of got it under control. I just sort of aged out of most of it, actually. <laughs> Which it doesn't really happen. But <laughs> Friends, that is not the gospel. That is not the message. That is not what Jesus will tell us here in this story. It is an absolute fallacy. It is the biggest younger brother lie out there. God loves you and he wants you back, but work real hard and clean yourself up on the way. False. Not true. You see, it turns out this story is not about the son's renewed loyalty at all. It's about the father's immeasurable grace. And I love the way Jesus tells it. (laughs) Because remember who's listening, right? You have this sort of bipolar crowd. You have the tax collectors and the sinners over here, and then you have the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. But in this moment, they're actually all thinking the same thing. Well, good for this kid. He's going back. He's doing the right thing. His dad will probably in time get over his anger and resentment and eventually be merciful. Eventually, this guy may even live with a level of respect in the community. He may even be invited back into the family someday if he's real good and tries real hard, but everyone would agree on this, he will never be a son again, not a full-fledged son, not an heir. He'll never be a son again. That's Those days are gone. In fact, what most scholars say is this. When this young boy left home, when he walked out of town with the money he'd sold the land for, his family would have had a funeral for him. They would have gathered not just in their hearts, not just in their minds, but they would have literally gathered, had a ceremony to say, our son is gone. He's dead. He's no more. We only have one kid now. That's why this father will say in this next section, the section we'll look at uh, this week, but then again next week, the son of mine was dead. He doesn't really think he died. He was just dead to his family. He was just dead in this father's heart. And so... We've seen the request, we've seen the rebellion, we've seen the repentance, and now let's look at the reunion. 
But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. By the way, the number one word to describe Jesus and the way he feels about you and me, the way he feels about people is that word right there, compassion. It's one of my favorite Bible words. I think I talk about it like three times a year in sermons. It's the word, do you guys remember? Splachnizomai. Carl's mouthing it with me. I love it. It means like emotion that comes erupting out of your inner being, out of your guts. It's awesome. That's how, I mean, Jesus does this and he's kind of like, ah, I, have to, I have to feel nice to these people, right? No, this comes out of his like innermost being. He's, comp- he's filled with compassion for this kid. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Now, what is this father doing? How does he know, first of all, that his son is even coming. Because it says he runs from him and he's a long way off. How does he even know? Does a message come to him? Do like people from surrounding villages send word? Does the Pony Express ride up and go, you know, telegram for Mr. Johnson? No, friends, no. Here's how he knows. He's waiting. He's looking. He's constantly scanning the horizon for this kid. You see, the expected response of this father would have been that he would be cold, that he would be standoffish, that he would have made his son prove himself, that he would have made him show remorse and faithfulness and loyalty, that he would not have even looked him in the eye for a certain amount of time until... Some of the shame that he had caused the family had worn off, but that is not what the father does in this Jesus story. He ran. Friends, dignified people in this world did not run. You know? Middle Eastern patriarchs did not run. When we go back to Omaha to see my parents, uh, you know, they won't let you come to the gate anymore because of all the security. So there's this really, really, really long hallway. It's probably twice as long as this center aisle. And we come around the corner and my parents are always standing like at the very edge of how far you're allowed to come into the airport. They're always standing at the very end of that hall. And we come around the corner and every time we go, my kids will just take off. I really don't like to let them run in public places, but it's one of those moments we just say, Go for it. And they just, boom, they come sprinting, right? That's how it's supposed to be. The kids are supposed to run for the grandparents. It would be really hilarious to see my dad with two hip replacements, like, in a full-on sprint, and then let's, like, tackle my kids. That would be awesome. Um, that's not how it goes, right? Because the kids are the ones who do the running. Not in this story. Not in this story. One of the reasons why Middle Eastern patriarchs didn't run is because they wore long robes. You, and they were fairly tight. Like, you can't... They went all the way to the ground because you weren't allowed to show any leg. And so you can't really run in the long robe, can you? The only way to run, the way this story is told, is he would have had to hike up his robe and bore his legs, which is another t- uh, sign of just extreme shame. And then the word that Jesus uses to describe his running is this Greek word drama. It's technically the word for racing in a stadium. This word doesn't indicate a trot or a shuffle or a middle-aged scoot. This father sprinted. He can't get there fast enough. And then we're told he threw his arms around him and kissed him. The, the Greek there literally means he fell on his neck. He buried his face in his neck. Now let me ask you this, friends. What does this response tell you about how He has been feeling about his son while he's been away. I mean, you think of what this kid did. Took away the family land. 
made him the talk of the town, embarrassed the family, disgraced the family, robbed the family of honor and finances and future. And how do you think the father felt for all those weeks or months or even years while the son was gone? What was he thinking about it? What were the emotions that were filling his heart as he thought about his son? You know, uh, one of the problems for me is I tend to think about this as a human, as an earthly father. And even just yesterday, uh, my two older kids had this chore in the backyard. We'd done a bunch of pruning of the overgrown shrubs in our backyard. We were long overdue. And I had done a ton of pruning. I had created these piles of leaves all throughout the backyard. And I told my two older kids, 12 and 9, all right, here's your job. All the piles in the bins. Like we have one big plastic bin and then you can use bags. I want them all up because I'm going to come back a little later and I'm going to mow the lawn. So I left. They had their job. Later I come back. The kids are long gone. They're off playing. And what do you think I discover? There's some piles left. Not all of them. They had put some in bags, but there's some piles left. And even worse, there were all these sticks just strewn throughout the grass in the yard. I told them, make sure you pick up all the sticks. You can leave some leaves. The lawnmower will suck them up. But make sure you pick up all the sticks. And so I'm mowing the lawn. I'm just kind of angry at them. And I'm mowing. And every time the lawnmower would go over a stick, you know, I'd be like, those stupid kids. I'm going to kill them. I'm going to, you know. I was just like, just angry. There's just all this anger and resentment and bitterness in my heart for my kids. And I just like, I can't wait till they get home from wherever they are, you know, like pastor goes to jail, whatever, whatever. Um, but I'm just sort of brooding in my heart. And when they came, I had calmed down a little bit because I do have the Holy Spirit, so that's great. Um, but I still gave him a little bit of a stern lecture and made him finish the job, right? That's not the heart of this father, right? And by the way, this is not a story about how to parent. This is a story about how God loves us, so don't misapply. Um, sometimes kids need a stern talk. But in this story about how God loves us in the midst of our rebellion and sin. He doesn't brood. What he's been thinking this whole time, which is what spurs this response, is, oh, my son, oh, my daughter, I just can't wait till she comes home. When will she get here? Will she come back? Doesn't she know? Doesn't he know how much I love him? He's been loving him. He's been concerned. He's been hoping that he would just come home. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against Heather and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. You see, now the son is ready to begin his restoration work. He's ready to start earning back his place in the family. But what Jesus is teaching us here is this. This is not how things work in the kingdom. Your status, your position, your relationship with the father is never something that you can or have to earn. It's only something that can be given. Even if you wanted to earn it, you never could. He won't let you. But the father said to his servants, quick, quick. I love that. Just little details of this story that just make it so powerful. This will not be a long, slow process of restoration. This will not be a grinded out moment. Remember how long it took for the son to betray his father and rebel and take off with all the family money? Remember how he tells the story at the beginning? He makes the request. The father divvies up the, 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 the stuff, the property. And then it says this, not long after. He's out of there. It happens almost instantly. That kid's rebellion comes flying off the gates. The same thing happens here, except for this time, what God does quickly is not 
rebellion. It's his response to our rebellion. It's his restoration. It's his reunion with us. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now we're going to talk more about this party, this fattened calf next week. But I will talk briefly about the sandals and the robe and the ring. Hired men went barefoot. Slaves went barefoot. Even certain family members went barefoot. The only people who wore shoes, sandals, were masters. Sons wore sandals. The best robe, that literally means the first ranking garment. The garment for the person who was the highest member of the household. We'll talk again next week about who that robe was supposed to belong to. But in this case, we know this. It's on the younger son. The signet ring. This is the ring. You've seen this in movies, right? Before they had, like, you know, licky stamps or even the peel-off stickers. How did they sign their letters? How did you know it was authentic? How did you know it hadn't been opened? How did you know who it was from? The signet ring, right? It was the thing that gave you the authority of the family. This kid has just come back from squandering the family land, the inheritance, the estate, and all of a sudden, just like that, with the snap of his fingers, the father gives him the authority to act on behalf of the family again? Exactly. Now, here's the the closing point I want to make today. Don't miss this. It's so beautiful. One of the big questions of this story is this. How does the father reinstate this son? If this story is supposed to be about how God invites us back into relationship with him after we have rebelled, if that's what this story is really about, well then how does God do it? Because there doesn't seem to be a sacrifice here. Aren't we told that God can't just do that? He can't just sort of sweep our sins under the rug and invite us back in? He has to do something. Someone has to pay. But in this story, people have said, no one pays. They're not reading the story close enough. You see, someone always has to pay. When you wrong someone, there's two choices. Either you pay them back or they absorb the wrong. And who in this story is forced to absorb the wrong? Who in this story is forced to absorb the welcoming home of this younger brother. The older brother. Because guess what? Who does the fattened calf belong to now? Who does the robe of the family belong to now? The father's already divvied up the estate. One third went to the the younger brother. That's gone. The other two thirds, the whole rest of the entire estate, it belongs to older brother. That fattened calf, that was his fattened calf. That robe, that was his robe. That signet ring, that was his ring. The inheritance that his younger brother will now receive again someday, that's his inheritance. He has to absorb, he has to sacrifice in order that the younger brother can be restored. Now, as we'll learn next week, the older brother is not, he's none too happy about this. And as an older brother, I can sort of relate to him. But let me say this. The point of Jesus' story, the beautiful message of his story is this. Even though in this case, this kid did not get the older brother that he deserved. In our case, we did. You see, the younger brother, I'm sorry, the older brother who sacrificed, 
so that we can be restored back into right relationship with God because of our rebellion is none other than Jesus Christ. And for us to be restored into right relationship with our Heavenly Father after the rebellion of sin that you and I have entered into, he had to pay. And he didn't just have to sacrifice a robe or a ring. Because of the enormity and size and weight of our sin, of our rebellion, he had to give it all. He had to give his life. He had to be dressed in rags so that we could be dressed in a robe. He had to be stripped naked and nailed barefoot to a cross so that we could have sandals. He had to give up his authority and power in connection with the Father so that we could be full-fledged, signet ring-wearing members of the family. And friends, that's the gospel. In our rebellion, God welcomes us back, but not for free, at a price. The price the older brother paid, the price of our Lord through his death and resurrection. And so today, we will close by sharing together the meal that reminds us of that truth once again. The meal that reminds us that Christ's body was broken, that his blood was shed, so that we could come home to the Father again. Got any requests of God today? Got any places in your life where you're just asking him to step aside? Got any places where you're in full-on rebellion, where you're just walking away, where you're living the way you want to live, where you're just saying, God, get away from me. Friends, are you trying to repent today? Are you trying to move back into God's good graces, but you're trying to do it in your own strength? Friends, the reunion that's available to you with our Lord is available for free, outside of anything you can do through the power of Christ. Remind yourself of that today. Remind yourself of who you are, the position you hold in the family, and remember, through communion, who gave you that place. Father, thank you so much for being the the perfect older brother. Help us, Lord, to see our rebellion and the places where we're moving towards that. Help us to fight our temptation to always want to earn your favor. Help us to really understand free love and grace and redemption is about and may you use it to change us and now Lord as we come to the table we remember all that you've done all that you are and that we are in you Jesus we love you we thank you we pray